Good morning, church. And take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse 14 this morning. As you may recall, last week we talked about the fall, a, certainly a low point, the lowest point, probably uh, only, only uh, exceeded by the darkness of an innocent Christ on the cross. And we talked last week, the beginning verses of chapter 3 and Adam's sin. And this morning we're going to look at the immediate consequences. And those immediate consequences are consequences that we're still dealing with today. As we'll talk about here in a moment, you might ask yourself, why are things the way that they are? Why is the world the way that it is? These are legitimate questions. These are good questions, but they're questions that are not answerless questions. They're questions that have an answer. And we're going to look at why things are the way they are this morning. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then Adam, he, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this text establishes the cold, hard reality that we are separate from you. There's brokenness in our relationship with you. There's brokenness with our relationship with other people. There's even brokenness within creation itself. Well, this is something that we struggle with. It's something that the world struggles with. It's, a, it's something that aisles full of self-help books and hours and hours of talking heads on the television try to deal with. But the solution, as well as the cause, is right here in your inspired word. So with your Holy Spirit with us this morning, Lord, show us, help us understand so that we may understand and that in your power we can help a watching and waiting world understand as well. 
We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. What is a curse? We don't often talk about curses. We don't often curse people, which is a good thing. Sometimes when we think of curses, we kind of immediately go in our minds to the idea of, of perhaps a, uh, something that is, is put on somebody like by a witch or by a wizard or something like that. And while that's certainly true, and we're only a stone's throw from Salem, Massachusetts, and there was lots of cursing and proposed cursing going on only a few hundred years ago, it didn't end very well. There's, the idea of a curse actually has deeper and real roots. A curse, particularly in the ancient Near East, which is, of course, the background and the context for where we get the, the, where Genesis was written, a curse is the consequence of any time someone breaks a rule or someone breaks a law, as Joe was talking about today already, when someone breaks the covenant or the agreement made between a king and his people. In fact, and this is something that we'll inevitably talk about more as we continue in Genesis in one way, shape, or form over the coming month, but when you look at the book of Genesis, and you look at a lot of the Old Testament, in fact, I would argue the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament is predicated upon the great king, God, giving the stipulations of how his people are to live and to relate to him. And he set out a pattern saying, these are the things you should do. And if you do these things, you will have blessing. Good things will happen. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. He gave them every tree and all the good food to eat. And if they did that, and if they kept his garden, and if they were fruitful and multiply and had dominion over the earth, then they would have relationship with God. In the covenant, that was the blessing that would come from obedience. But there's also the cursing that comes from disobedience. And this is the, not an idea of a curse and like pointing a crooked finger at someone and telling them that their crops will not produce and their, their, their uh, cattle will, be, will not have uh, their young and they're going to have a wart on their nose or something like that. But this is simply the outcome, the negative outcome of disobedience. Once again, we go to that deep, deep well of parents and children. If you obey the rules, then you will be able to stay up and eat ice cream. If you disobey the rules, you will go to bed early and you will not have ice cream. Not a lot of parenting books talk about those stipulations as blessings and curses, but really, when you tell your child to go to bed without having ice cream, you are cursing them. This is the kind of thing that would get Child Protective Service called on you if you called it cursing. But that's ultimately what it is. You were saying there's blessing if you do right, there's cursing, there's bad things if you are disobedient. And so that is the context of, of what we see when we go to Genesis chapter 3. And that would have been understood by the original audience of Genesis. When the children of Israel received this, they received it in a format they received it in, even in a structure as Moses wrote this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and gave it to them that it looked like the very same documents that they would have seen from the other kings and the other people in the lands that they were in contact with. It would have been very similar to what they had experienced in the time as that they were in Egypt. So this is not some sort of weird thing that the Bible has and it's the only place you find it. More and more and more. Secular archaeology 
as well as archaeology of Christian and Jewish scholars, as they look into the things that we're finding in the ancient Near East, they're finding more and more documents about how kings and their people related with one another that line up perfectly with what we see in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But all that to say, when the king, what the king says goes. The curse is real and it sticks. So like I led this morning, the consequences of the fall, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin are what we are still dealing with today. The curse is real. It explains why the world is the way that it is. Certainly politics play a role in it. Certainly, certainly geopolitical issues at a greater level than our own country have a significant role with it that has to do with it. Certainly, individual choices of people, the bad choices that people make, have a significant role to play in the world being the way it is. But there's always an underlying cause. There's always a cause that goes back further. There's always an initial reason why things are the way they are. And Scripture makes it clear that the reason, the way things are today, and I think we can all agree across the board that things are not good, and they haven't been good for a long time, the root of that we see here in Genesis 3, the consequences of the fall. So we're going to talk about three curses that are given by God. One we're going to go through quickly because we're going to spend a lot more time on it next week, and the other two we'll look at more fully this morning. The first curse is on the serpent. The serpent is cursed. So remember, as we talked about last week, the serpent is a serpent, but it's also, as Scripture articulates later, the serpent is Satan working through this serpent. So look at verse 14. We already read it this morning. It says, And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. The serpent and Satan are cursed. I think the first question to ask is, why curse a snake? Why curse an animal? If the devil was behind this and the serpent was really only his proxy, was only being used, his puppet, if you will, why curse the serpent? This is a great question. This is something I think we don't talk about enough. But I think there's a few uh, good reasons and one that is probably prominent and predominant as we look at this. Why curse the snake? As we talked about last week, we know that God is not above utilizing his creation in a way to demonstrate his displeasure with sin. Remember Jesus casting out the demons of the Gerasene demoniacs, and he cast them into pigs. He could have instantaneously snapped his fingers and they would have been annihilated or they would have been um, put down into some sort of uh, prison until the end of time. But in his wisdom, in his providence, and in his sovereignty, his ability to do so, he cast it into creatures. We also think of Christ walking by a fig tree and cursing a fig tree, immediately causing it, well, over the course of the, that night, causing it to wither and to cease producing figs. The nature of man's sin, the nature of sin itself, as we'll see here in a minute once we get to the curse on man, is such that its effects are permeating all of creation. Sin is never localized. Sin never stays in its box. 
Sin always overflows the pitcher that it is poured into, and it always makes a mess all around it. This is something that we, that we clearly understand. There is rarely a situation in a family, in a church, in a town, in an organization where one person does something bad and it only stays there. Whether it be the splashover effects of the grief and the pain, or whether it be the reactions that are caused by that person's sin, sin always overflows into the various dynamics of the situation that it finds itself in. So much of of pastoral ministry is predicated upon the situation. So much of counseling is predicated upon this. So much of our legal system is predicated upon this situation. And so we see that here, that it wasn't that the serpent was necessarily an innocent bystander. It was that a serpent is part of the system, a a part of the creation, and is the the recipient of this curse as well. We see that today. Although some people like snakes, most people don't like snakes. And even me saying the word snake creates a visceral response in some of you. And as I mentioned last week, I kind of enjoy watching that from this standpoint. This is what it says in Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will get set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One of the images that we have of the new creation, of God bringing all things to reconciliation, of the, the, the freedom that will ultimately come because of Christ's inaugurated and soon-to-be-consummated work, is this picture of a child playing at the den of an asp, of a serpent. This is something where even the, the, the snake itself, not Satan, but the snake itself, will be redeemed for God's purposes. So the serpent has been cursed. Satan has been cursed. And there's more to that curse. We see it in verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, here talking to the serpent and Satan, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, specifically talking about Satan, this part of the curse entails total defeat. This is the promise that is the most exciting aspect of this entire passage. This is the promise that is actually the most exciting aspect of the entirety of Genesis, and that you can make the argument the most exciting promise that we see in the Old Testament. Not to spoil the story, but this is the first time we see the gospel preached in the Bible, that God will provide a Savior for a people who cannot save themselves. We'll talk more about this much, much, much detail next week. But God curses the serpent and Satan, but now God turns to man. And as Joe brought up this morning in the catechism, because of original sin, there are deep, deep consequences. The consequences that we still feel ourselves in our own body, in our various organizations and structures that we are in, and globally. The uh, great uh, theologian Charles Hodge wrote that at the fall, man was entirely and absolutely ruined. The curses were but expressions of the divine displeasure and the consequence of that spiritual death. 
The curses were but expressions of the divine displeasure and the consequences of spiritual death. So again, this is why things are the way they are. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they put themselves in in contrast to God. They attempted to do the thing that was only in the realm of the Creator as creatures. Again, church, the presuppositions of this world are found in Genesis 1 through 3. Before we get to the curse of the woman, I just want to reiterate that, that, that our purpose, that the elders' purpose in having this be our present sermon series is to help us understand that everything that we know about the world today, who God is, why the world exists, what the purpose of man is, what, are, what is the, the, the purpose of male and female, the purpose of the family, all of these things are found in Genesis 1 through 3. But just like all of these positive proclamations are found in Genesis 1 through 3, similarly, the negative situation we find ourselves in is found in Genesis 1 through 3. It always goes back to this. Certainly, our rational minds can understand and explain plenty of things. But those things are ultimately subjective things that exist only between our ears. And although as right as they may be, they are found in frail, fragile humanity. And certainly, the Word of God articulates and expresses the implications of so many things that we see in Genesis 1-3. through We've already turned to the New Testament this morning. We'll continue to do so. But all of these things are simply expressions of, divine expressions of what we see in Genesis 1-3. through these are so important. And that's why, if, if, if we don't get Genesis 1 through 3 right, we get the rest of it wrong. If we are uncomfortable about a doctrine in Genesis 1 through 3, what we're effectively doing is taking that bottom Jenga piece out, hoping that the rest of the tower will be able to stay sure and strong. But it's impossible. It's something that the, the biblical worldview cannot stand upon. It's something that the early church, it's something that the, the Jews who had the Old Testament, they could not have understood. And so we, 2,000 years later, cannot have some sort of chronological snobbery thinking that we have something better because of where we find ourselves in the 21st century. We must stand on the firm and sure word of God as expressed in these opening chapters of Genesis. So now we turn to the curse of the woman. The woman is cursed. Look at verse 16. It says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain you will bear children. You have to remember, and John talked about this a few weeks ago when he talked about the creation mandate. One of the things God told man and woman to do after he created them and they were in this state of innocence and they were in the garden was to be fruitful and to multiply. The plan to have and bear children was always part of God's plan before sin. And so although that, main, that sticks, and I think John did a great job of explaining how the creation mandate is not abrogated, is not gone away just because of sin, it is now going to be much more difficult. And to the very plain and simple point of that childbirth, carrying the child, bearing the child, and I would even say, and most, most theologians have, have agreed with this over the centuries, just even the idea of having children and the heartbreak that comes in seeing your child get hurt and seeing your child say no in that relationship is now going to exist because of sin. Sin takes something that was meant to be good 
and smooth and simple, and it makes it rocky and painful and difficult. The experience of procreation and child-rearing now is feeling the curse. God goes on to say to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is so much at the heart of many of the problems that we experience in our world. The idea of interpersonal relationship at a macro level is what causes so many of our problems. Very few times does somebody call me up and come into my office and say, everything is great with me and everybody else. I'm the problem, so I need to talk to you about pastoral counseling. That never happens. It never, even if they acknowledge that the problem is 98% them, they say, but my wife was really the one who pointed this out to me, and I'm kind of angry about it. Or my husband has, has had this, this conversation that is ongoing about my problem. There's always this overflow about the issues that we bring on to ourselves. Relationships are cursed because of the fall. And the most essential and basic relationship that exists in mankind, the relationship between husband and wife, is what we see fractured here at the very beginning of fallen world. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So although there was already structure that existed in the garden, Adam was given Eve as a helper. This existed before the fall. Remember, Adam was given Eve as a helper by God before there was sin. Adam was to lead her. Adam defaulted in his leadership when he allowed the serpent to, to deceive her. There was already that structure. But now that structure and that relationship had been bent, had been fractured, had been perverted. 20th century philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer says this about this. He says, in a fallen world, structure is needed for order. God himself imposes it on the basic human relationship. Form is given, and without such form, freedom would be chaos. We talked about that last week, how true freedom is actually not freedom at all. He goes on to say, but the Bible makes plain that this relationship is not to be without love. And then in talking about the curse and kind of the, the pushing back against it, he says, but when the woman tries to smash the structure of this basic relationship, finally, what she does is to hurt herself. Church, we could talk about this at length, but one of the greatest problems that we've experienced in the last few generations is this present wave of feminism. In fact, the last two waves of feminism that have effectively sought to completely invert the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife. This has nothing to do with voting. This has nothing to do with rights. This has nothing to do with dignity. In fact, as we already talked about, and this is why this, this sermon series is so essential to understand in a progressive way, what has already been established is that male, man and woman are both equal in the eyes of God. Man and women are both image bearers. Man and women are both ones who share in dignity. But because of this, this, this sin that was, in, in, that was invaded the world, that broke relationships, now this most basic relationship is going to be characterized by struggle and by strife. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
Women will want to usurp their husband's headship, and men will want to be domineering. That's what it comes down to. This relationship of their needing to be, although there's ontological, there's, 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 there's uh, equality in the value of man and woman, that God desires there to be an economic headship, an economic order. This so often and so prevalent in our culture and throughout other cultures gets perverted. And this is one of the, the things that is in our face today in our culture. This, this dissolution, not only of man and woman in relationship, but man and woman as ideas, shows the logical, sinful repercussions of this very doctrine. Motherhood and being a wife are the most natural things for a woman. We talk about maternal instinct. We talk about just, just this, this, how it's the most natural and normal thing that we see. It, it's something that is so plain where you give a, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little boy playing with a doll and there's nothing wrong with a little girl playing with a sword, but nine out of ten times when they walk into a, 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 toy store, a toy store or they walk into a church nursery, the little girl is going to walk over to the baby doll and put it in the carriage and the little boy is going to hopefully protect, not attack, with the toy sword. That's just the way that we are made. And as much as the world would want to take out the pink and the blue out of the toy aisles and out of the clothing sections, there's always going to be the way that we are built, the DNA, the wiring that God has given us is going to rebel against that. And we see that today. We see the active attempt to suppress what is so very clear, not only in gender, but in relationship. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, we don't have time to go there, but when he talks about the depravity of man, the original sin and its effects, he talks about some examples of what transpires because of man rejecting God. And the very first example that he gives of all the examples is he says that even their women exchange the natural passions of women for each other. You, the completely absconding of motherhood, completely getting rid of being a wife. This is the corruption of sin. Certainly there's other corruptions. There's certainly other implications. But this is, as Scripture says, a great example of this corruption and the curse of relationships. Church, we could have an entire sermon about marriage counseling. We could have an entire sermon about what godly marriage looks like. But we know that this enmity, it's not a you problem. It is a you problem, but it's a you problem because it's an us problem. The issues that we experience in, the, in trying to have a happy home go back to the very first home being happy and then being ruin, ruined because of, a, a, of, of getting rid of their responsibilities and doing the wrong thing. At the same time, church, we have to acknowledge that by and large, there is such great common grace. And so many still conform to the creation order. This is why we celebrate good marriages, whether they are in the church or whether they're not in the church. It, the litmus test of, if, of a marriage is not necessarily, can, these, can the man and the woman each recite every catechism question? Are, do they love each other? Are they raising children? There is something inherently good about that that we have to acknowledge and we have to laud and we have to lift up. 
Obviously, the desire is that they will come to know God. Obviously, the desire is that they will raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is obviously, ultimately, the desire and the plan. At the same time, there is something good for society and there's something good for culture that comes when the man and a woman love each other and they raise their children in a way that is respectful and honorable and virtuous. For all of the sin, for all of the things that are falling apart, for all of the virtue signaling that we see in our culture, the fact that so many still comply to this standard says something about God's great common grace. But of course, rejection of this order isn't liberating to women. Rejection of this order doesn't take men down a peg. Rejection of this order, the natural consequence of, of the woman's desire being for her husband and him ruling over them in the wrong way, hurts women, it hurts families, and it hurts culture. This is the great gospel message played out in relationships and in families that there are implications to the gospel that go beyond Jesus lives in my heart. The gospel is about individual salvation, but it's also how it permeates families and it permeates cultures. And so consequently, the gospel is preached to save souls, but also to transform families. This is the curse on the woman. Now the man is cursed. Look at verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. All creation is cursed. Yard work is fun when you want to do yard work. Let's make that very clear. When family is coming over and you have a lot of things to do and you realize that the grass is knee-high, lawn work is not fun. When it's 95 degrees and humid out, lawn work is not fun. But when it's a nice day, when you can wear your wide brim hat, when you can have your glass of lemonade, it's pleasant to be outside. It's pleasant to take care of your yard. But part of that, part of that work is that because creation is cursed. Going through your yard and having to pull out the poison ivy dealing with thorns and thistles, having to wear gloves because you never know where you're going to grab is the result of cursed creation. Living in the South, I became familiar with fire ants. I did landscaping as my first job when I was in South Carolina, and I learned that you never reached under a bush to find a tool, or you never reached behind a wall to turn on the water without checking first. Because little incarnate demons would create these piles and they have the uncanny ability where you don't just get by, hit bit by one. They all, they, they, they gently cover you and then using some sort of telepathic ability that they possess, again, being demonic entities, they say, now, bite this poor unfortunate soul. And so, my taking care of the ground immediately turned into welts from fingertip to elbow. This is the nature of fallen creation. I don't think Adam had to worry about fire ants. And, if, and, and all he could, would, would potentially do is look at them and appreciate them. They're, they're, they're doing what they were meant to do by creating these little mounds and, and, and demonstrating the creativity of their creator. 
But because of Adam's curse, the ground is now cursed. The ground is now cursed. It says, in pain you will eat of it, in verse 17, all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Now, we don't have a perfect picture of what creation looked like. If, if, if Adam simply uh, you know, laid, laid down seeds and the exact plants popped straight up and he never had to tend, he never had to weed, he never had to water, we don't know what that looks like. But what we do know is that God's initial design and initial plan was now perverted and bent. Thorns and thistles are not what you want in your garden. What you want is tomatoes and peppers and corn. Thorns and thistles now are what you have to deal with. Things that sting, things that hurt, things that create rashes, things that create beetles that come and not just eat those things, but they eat the things that you want them to eat. And you extrapolate that out to the grand level of one of the things that we talk about today in, our, in the news and across the, across, the, across the globe is how are we going to feed all of these people? Should we feed them meat or should we feed them bugs? Church, the answer is no, never bugs. But all of these things that we're still dealing with today are the consequence of a fallen world. Adam was meant to be the one who tilled the earth, who cultivated the earth. But now it is done through sweat. Now it is done through pain. Now there is curse in it. And notice what God says in verse 19. Till you return from the ground, you will work, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So as much as we think about cursed creation, as much as we think about how difficult it is now to go out and, and work from the ground, the rocky New England soil, enough sustenance to make it through the long, cold, hard winter, all of those things are first and foremost in our mind because we need that food, otherwise our bodies will die. And it's not a matter of if we were able to get the food, our bodies will live. Our bodies will now die, will return to the earth, will return to dust because this is the result of the fall. God's promise to Adam was, when you eat from the tree, you will die. In his graciousness, again, he didn't zap them as soon as that fruit touched their lips or as soon as the thought to eat that fruit crossed their minds. In his grace, he gave them more time. In us, he gives, to us, he gives us grace to have more time where when we sin, he doesn't strike us dead immediately. But that is the ultimate and eventual end. That is the ultimate and eventual consequence of our sin. Our bodies are cursed and they fall apart. You may even be feeling that today. Those small pains, those discomforts, worrying about loved ones, this is the result of the fall. Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein said it very succinctly. He said, the ground man was to subdue would subdue him. The ground that man was to subdue would now subdue him. Adam was given the command to subdue the earth, but every one of us, if the Lord tarries, will be taken by the earth once more. This is the nature of the curse. So now, 
we engage in cursed work on a cursed earth with cursed bodies. Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and all of those times that eventually bleed out from that interval are difficult because of sin. It's not difficult because you got an extra call from your boss. It's not difficult because your plow broke. It's not difficult because it was a bad season. It's difficult because of sin. Every one of those things is not anyone's fault but our own and the fault of our very first parents. But at the same time, we need to maintain a proper balance as we understand this. Work is not evil. Remember, work was given to Adam before the fall. He was given the command to, be, to have dominion over the earth. The earth itself is not sinful. The earth itself is not evil. When God created the earth, he said it was good. And actually, in totality, it was very good. Our bodies are not evil. Although we don't have pictures of Adam and Eve, we assume they look a lot like us. Work is not evil. The earth is not evil itself. Our bodies are not evil. But the curse has caused all of these things to be broken, to be bent, to be degraded. So much about these things is said today about what makes a man. How fit is their body? How lucrative or, or how, how, um, uh, how devoted is their work? It's important that we don't swing to the opposite side of the pendulum. We can't undo the curse by running more miles. We can't undo the curse by lifting more weights. We can't undo the curse by making our homestead perfect. We can't undo the curse by rising to the top of our company. We can't undo the curse by doing these things better and harder. The curse is going to be there. On the 80th hour that we work that week, the curse is still going to be there. If we achieve the, the upper echelon of physical activity in our bodies, the curse is still going to be there. And if we eliminate carbon emissions and we reduce the Earth's population so that there can be some sort of utopia as we're being promised by these global leaders, the curse is still going to be there. And I would actually venture to say in that very last one, that is an example of the curse being played out even more. That man would double back on God's command to be fruitful and multiply. These are examples of the curse actually being made evident at a grand level. Church, a man is made, not by his work, not by his body, not by his subduing the earth, a man is made by his faithfulness to his calling. To be faithful to God. To be faithful to his family. To have right order in his relationship with his wife and his children and his community and his neighbors. And to have right order in the way he deals with creation. This is how a man is made right after he knows God. This is obedience. This is following God's law fully. So the woman is cursed. The man is cursed. Of course, we talked about the serpent being cursed. And we have one more thing as we wrap up this text. Because God gives more results of this curse. Look at verse 20. He says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments for skin, of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
Notice this, what had to happen. When you make garments of skin, where does that skin come from? Certainly, God could speak skin into being. He's in the business of speaking things into being. But skin, whether it be your leather shoes, whether it be your leather jacket, it comes from death. It comes from something being killed. It comes from shed blood. Yahweh God made garments for skin. One more example of God being gracious. Remember, Adam and Eve had sewed fig leaves together. God has now made them something more permanent, something more significant. Even in the context of their sin being the reason why they wanted to cover themselves, God is being gracious to them and accommodating them where they are at that moment by making them garments out of skin. But of course, that required the death and the bloodshed of some other creature. God clothed them in that. Blood is always the natural result of sin. Bloodshed is always the natural result of sin. Verse 22, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, let us send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat forever. It's interesting. The way that this is phrased, I mean, read it. This is a text that we've read a thousand times if we've grown up in church. Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, talking about the Godhead, to know good and evil. So now, Adam and Eve, they know what evil is. Now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. It's rendered a bit awkwardly in this translation. But what it's essentially saying is that there is now going to have to be something in between man and the tree of life. But notice that first statement God makes. Behold, the man has become like one of us. Were Adam and Eve gods? Did Adam and Eve get, did the promise made to them by the serpent, did it actually come true? I like what uh, Dutch theologian Petrus von Maastricht, that's a good name if anyone's thinking about naming a baby something Dutch. He said this, he said that God used sarcasm to upbraid man's pride in verse 22. God made, used sarcasm to upbraid man's pride in verse 22. God, God knows that man didn't become like one of them, but that was the promise that was made. That was the promise the serpent made to them. And so now God, inevitably having, having a conversation with Adam and Eve, saying, you've gotten what you've wanted. You've gotten what you, what you thought you were being promised. You know good and evil, not in the way that God knows good and evil, but now you know evil. You are evil. You have experienced evil. The original sin is now in you. You have brought sin into the world. You, you have, were given a promise, and now you have gotten everything that you deserved. Of course, it was a bad promise made by Satan with the intention of leading them down this path. So now God is saying that man will not be able to take forth his, send forth his hand, take also from the tree of life, and live forever. Adam needed God's provision. Adam was not, is not a perfect being in the garden. I think we have to understand that. Adam needed food. Adam needed companionship. And Adam was a finite, 
imperfect creation in the sense that he was totally dependent upon God. God did not create a little demigod that could live independent from him in the Garden of Eden. Adam was completely dependent upon God at the most basic level for life. Adam was not the creator of fruit. God was the creator of fruit. Adam was not the creator of air. God was the creator of air. God sustained Adam through those things and through this tree of life. But now because of man's sin, Adam was cut off from that. We see that in verse 23. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Because of sin, man is now prohibited to access the life that was promised him. To, to go back on this, this idea of the Garden of Eden that we talked about when we talked about Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden as God's garden of his temple where he met with man, now man was, in a sense, excommunicated from the temple. You have a flaming sword that is moving every direction to keep man from having that, that uh, intimate relationship with God. Man was prohibited. Man was excommunicated. And a return, a return to the garden, a return to relationship with God would require facing this angel, facing this fire, a return to, communi to community with God would require reckoning with God's judgment. There is no way that man can enter back into relationship with God but by dealing with God's judgment. It was true then, in the first minute where Adam stepped the first foot out of the Garden of Eden, and it's true today. Thankfully, church, God has reckoned with his judgment. We are not called to walk to this place where this cherubim is and fight him with his flaming sword. We are not called to deal with God's wrath because if we attempted to do that on our own, we would be struck down instantaneously. We would not even put up a fight. But there was one man who did deal with God's judgment, who took on the full course of God's judgment. And of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the full wrath and full punishment for sinful man himself. And that's why he's a savior. He's not a savior because he was a good man, although he was a good man. He's not a savior because he was a good teacher, although he was a good teacher. He's not a savior because he simply died a martyr's death, although he did die a martyr's death. Although all of those things are true, the reason why Jesus was a savior is because he took God's full wrath and so that we didn't have to bear it. That is why Jesus is a savior. Jesus was an appropriate savior because of his perfection and because of he fulfilled the law that we talked about earlier this morning that none of us could fulfill. And because of that, as he took on the full wrath of God, he was a suitable sacrifice. Adam could not turn around and face the flaming sword of God's judgment 
But Jesus Christ was on the cross, took the full punishment, and consequently, the veil was torn, the flame was extinguished for all those who would be found in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to us to remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Before Christ, there was a flame of judgment between us and God. And so, church, to bring it to a close, we have this great message of hope that Christ is the one, as we'll talk about next week, the one that was promised in these verses that we kind of went through very, very quickly. We know Christ is our hope. But a message of hope can only be presented in distinction to the message of the dire circumstance. And it's essential for people to understand their own dire circumstance before they understand hope. It is an, it a weak gospel to just offer hope and not share somebody why they need hope. It is a, it is a weak way to talk about our need for a savior without talking for the fact that we are in a situation that requires a savior. So we have this message of the gospel, but we also need to understand the problem with women. We also need to understand the problem with men. We need to understand the problem with the world. We have to understand these things, and we cannot accept that the status quo of the world today is good. We cannot accept the fact that exile from the garden, exile from the presence of God is good. The Bible shows us here in Genesis chapter 3, with the fall and with the curse, how things are. It explains every aspect of broken relationship, of broken bodies, of broken creation. But of course, it also explains how things should be. It gives us the good news after it gives us the bad news. But we need to understand both of those things. We can't be the doom and gloom preachers that go out simply saying, repent because you're bad. But we also can't be so fluffy that we say, just trust Jesus. It needs to be both of these things. The bad news is followed by the good news. The bad news of exile is, is followed by the good news of the reconciliation that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we mentioned earlier, and as we'll talk about next week, within this curse, there is a promise. Within this curse, there's a promise of salvation. So church, we think about this as we, as we conclude our service. Adam was anticipating this. From the moment he stepped out of the Garden of Eden, he was anticipating an opportunity for redemption, for reconciliation, for, for, for uh, healing of the relationship inside himself and the relationship with his wife and, of course, the relationship with God. Adam anticipated it. We get to look back on it. Adam was waiting for the one that would come to bring reconciliation. We, 2,000 years later, and halfway across the world, get to look back upon the one who walked in Israel and who ascended across and did so to bring that reconciliation. And so one of the ways that we remember this 
One of the ways that, in fact, the primary way that God commanded us to remember this is by taking the Lord's Supper. And so in this wine, we remember the blood that was shed. Remember, as we said before, there is never sin without the shedding of blood. Because of your sin, because of my sin, Christ's blood was shed. And so the wine reminds us of that. It is a potent sacrament for a potent sacrifice. The bread reminds us of his body that was broken, taking on the wrath of God that we should have experienced because we rightly incurred it. Yes, Adam and Eve, our first parents, were the ones that brought it into the world, but we quickly and readily joined them in that and do so daily. And so this wine and this bread, it doesn't save us. Christ saves us. This bread and this wine, it doesn't bring you closer to Jesus if you don't know him. And so, although inclusivity and and, and desiring to be in community is one of the hallmarks of who we are and what we do, this is not our table. So we can't say, come as you are. We can only say, come in Christ. The invitation is for those who know Jesus. If you know Jesus, we welcome you. We desire you to take this. We desire for it to minister to you. We desire for it to be a reminder of what Christ has done for you. But if you don't know Christ, this is not for you. But we desire that you know him, knowing that he is the only one who can bring that reconciliation and that redemption. And that's the joy of this table. And that's the joy of this supper. So as John comes up to lead us in the last song, uh, I'll invite you to come up and receive the elements and then go back and we will take them together in a moment. But will you pray with me? Lord, we are the beneficiaries of where you have sovereignly and providentially chosen to put us in history. We are able to see the scope of a perfect creation, of a fallen world, but of reconciliation and redemption accomplished through your Son. Lord, this morning as we approach the table, we pray that this is something we take with all seriousness. We pray that we make ourselves right with you even in these few moments, knowing that you have already done all the work through the work of your Son. But Lord, we confess that as women, we struggle with our lot in life, the pain of conceiving, bearing, raising children, of being in relationship especially with our husbands. We confess as men of not being in right relationship with our wives, of toiling in futility and fighting against the death that we rightly deserve. But Lord, we know that you have promised that you will redeem these things, things that you created for our good and for your glory. And so as we take these simple elements, remind us of how simple we are and how great you are. We ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen.